For October 21st, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 590, Big Trouble in Big China. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking about the things that interest us, except politics. We don't talk about politics, do we? I'm Matt Rather, and and uh, here, my partners in political science, silence are Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hi, Matt. <laughs> and uh and mark lee how are you mark power to the people yeah, so i've i've convened this meeting of the uh, overthinking it not talking about politics club uh to ask why why you know why don't we talk about politics on on overthinking it that it's it's an interesting question the answer is me largely i have sort of <laughs> Uh, steered us away from it. I mean, that's fair to say, right? And made made arguments, which, which I guess you know everyone found more or less persuasive. But it was I I would venture to say it was really me advancing the arguments that uh, the cost benefit analysis didn't pan out, and I I don't like. Um, I'm, I'm sort of conflict averse, uh, and and I just don't think that people bloviating in comment sections is is all that useful. And so, to a certain extent, I engaged in like what what is it preemptive selection bias, right? Like uh, by the, I sort of started the. Um, we focused on the site on things that I thought we could have good discussions about in the comments, but you know what. To hell with that. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, let's get banned in China. Mark, what's going on in Hong Kong? (laughs) A thing or two. Um, Quite a lot. Um, And it's also spread uh, into these United States of America as well. And we'll talk about all this in just a second. So if you haven't been following all of these developments over the last few months or stretching back a few years as well, too, I'm going to try to give... A very brief summary and cite some specific examples, which would be of interest to this panel and our audience, I believe. So where to start? Okay, so a few months ago, uh, Hong Kong right, um, started to advance a law that people didn't like because basically it would allow uh, the mainland government to extradite anyone for pretty much any reason. So that's like really not great for the rule of law stuff that they like in Hong Kong because they inherited that from the British. And that's all kind of complicated as well, too. Um, Anyway, that set off months upon months of protests and, um, you know, various voices in the Western democratic world have tried to speak up in support. um, But it seems like a lot of corporate interests um, are, are pushing back against that and really essentially like helping mainland China suppress a lot of these opinions, not just within, you know, the Great Firewall of China, but also in the broader Internet and the broader economy as well. Uh, things that have happened after the Hong Kong incident. Let's see here. Uh, there, there's quite a lot. Um, let's see here. Uh, the Lots of Chinese uh, companies severed relationships with various parts of the NBA because uh, an employee or I guess what a high level employee of a team tweeted out, made a tweet in support of the Hong Kong protesters. Um, Really notably, the game company Blizzard banned a professional gamer for um, voicing support for the Hong Kong protests uh, on a live stream. Um, Apple 
uh, Apple computer has done a lot of the small and big things, uh, including like uh, yanking a, a an app that the protesters using to track the movements of the police. Um, so those are some notable things there. But just like in the in the pop culture corner, I just want to m- mention a few quick examples, and then I'll just kind of open up for a broader discussion. Before all this Hong Kong stuff happened, but a few years ago, you might remember that the remake of Red Dawn was supposed to be about the Chinese communists coming to take over a small town in the United States. Uh, the studios rightfully realized that that would piss off uh, money Chinese interests, uh, digitally altered all the references from the Chinese into North Koreans. Uh, sidebar, it's a little bit racist as well, too, because the Asian stuff. Uh, but moving along, uh, the Walt Disney Company uh, has uh, what removed a reference, um, changed uh, uh, the, the ancient one and Doctor Strange from a Tibetan into something more generic, while a white lady. Um, and uh, really interestingly, recently, in the, someone caught in the uh, trailer for the upcoming Top Gun sequel, um, uh, Maverick's jacket used to have a Taiwanese uh, flag patch on its back, and it's gone. And you can you can fill in the blanks for all that. So lots of stuff. That's kind of your your very quick context setting. I, I probably left out a whole bunch of even crazier things than that. Um, but the long story short, uh, trouble brewing in Hong Kong and China, and China is uh, throwing its weight around uh, in a really big way and influencing the discourse. Mark, the would, discourse, you, say, you, would you say it's big uh, drink? Would you say it's big trouble? In, in big China, <laughs> yes. Um, so, I mean, basically, this is what it comes down to, guys. For me, it's a matter of principle. I'll uh, I'll keep silent about politics for the eleven years that we've operated overthinking it. Um, but the second they alter a stitch of clothing on Maverick's back, I'm coming out swinging. Um, yeah, wow, uh, Pete. Where where does your mind go when you start talking about this? When we start talking about this stuff. Well, so we have definitely seen some of the seam strain on our longtime commitment and overthinking it to try not to speak direct. I would say not this is not necessarily that we don't talk about politics in a larger sense. It's that we've really tried to avoid talking about partisan politics. And when we say politics in that sense, we mean the people who are running for office, uh, the people who are involved in the kind of day-to-day news that's associated with the very clear agendas of the political parties. And we, we've tried to sort of talk around these things. And I think part of why we've done it over the years is because we recognize that people have really strong loyalties in these kinds of relationships. And if they are if, if we identify ourselves as being in one particular in-group and like not in a different in-group, the people who are in the other in-group might immediately shut off and stop listening to us. And then we've sort of ended up excluding them. And it's not like the people that we're in the in-group with anyway uh, are really appreciating it or getting a lot out of the extra like dig that we make, right? And and lately this is sort of strained because we live in sort of a post-Jimmy Fallon world where uh, that kind of old motto of entertainment that you can disinvolve yourself uh, from politics in this sort of like act of courtesy – uh, we don't, we're not really living that anymore, right? Like co- politics is being talked about constantly, and by yeah, politics the, the again, Ellen, I don't. Yeah. I, I call it a post Ellen world these days. A post Ellen world. Oh, in reference to Ellen and uh, hanging out 
uh, with with the in, invader of Iraq, right? Yeah, with with noted war criminal George W. Bush. <laughs> right, exactly. Coming out swinging, state. guys. <laughs> um, and lately, of course, it's broken. It's cracked at the seams because it's really hard to talk about the pop culture these days without talking about the political figures. Uh, the president is a celebrity, a television personality, a pro wrestler, uh, at least guest, right? So it's sort of hard to kind of delve into all this without getting involved in all of it. Um, but I think it's notable to consider that the reason that we were avoiding it was, I mean, I guess it was partly fear that at some point along the line, we'd suffer some sort of reprisal for, uh, declaring ourselves on one side or the other. Like when I wrote my Ninja Turtles piece about the financial crisis, which is probably one of my more favorite things that I've written and overthinking it years ago, uh, it was partly to to be able to talk about the financial crisis while working for a major bank without talking specifically about the bank or about its customers or about anything that would necessarily get me fired. It was sort of like talking about the Ninja Turtles in order to avoid uh, facing consequences for talking about things too directly. And so there's an element of that. But there's also this element of trying to to be inviting to people and welcoming to people Um that has informed it. And, and I guess what we're maybe seeing is maybe that's not, maybe, maybe that's not the case anymore. I don't know. Maybe there's different priorities. Uh, and, and there's, of course, there's the issue of not talking about things because you know that the level of discourse is going to plummet once you start getting into those arguments, right? You're thinking, well, I don't want to talk about politics on this particular forum because this forum is about woodworking and I want to talk about woodworking. And every time I mention politics, the conversation never comes around back to woodworking and it's really frustrating and it makes the forum less useful, uh, which is a, a wonderful little tactic you can use in order to quash you know, vectors of dissent, uh, if, you, if you like. So it has been a bit of an education to consider like, well, maybe this level level of kind of isolation from these kinds of topics is ultimately counterproductive or it was from another era or something along those lines. What's coming out of, of uh, Xi Jinping? Is that how you pronounce it? Is it Xi or Xi? How do, how do you pronounce his first name? Uh, Xi? Well, that's the, family, that's the family name. But the um, oh. Yeah. oh, his family name is Xi. Is Xi. Got first, it. Okay. Yeah. So like, for gotcha. example, how Chairman Mao is, his last name is Mao. Even though oh, got it, got it. So, Mr. G, right? He pities the fools. He has no pity, actually, for, for people foolish or wise. And his sort of really, his personal agenda as the head of state in the People's Republic of China and the head of the Chinese Communist Party to really drive this censorship trade. Like, yeah, there there's a lot, been a lot of leaders in China who have been pretty fond of controlling the way and degree to which people talk about things. But Mr. G is like, pretty up on that, right? Mr. Mr. Winnie the Pooh is like really, really forcing it. And while I wonder if it feels from people on the inside that that's kind of what's happening, it's like, don't rock the boat, don't compromise the stability of our conversation, you're just causing trouble. If that's sort of how it feels to some people, uh, it definitely feels different to me. And it feels like, um, well, for one, the idea that you're being told to do it uh, and that the consequences are like out in the open is a change. And obviously it's not one I'm particularly comfortable with and I don't support it. Uh, and, and I also doubt that it works. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, people will still be talking here and there. I mean, they still spoke Catalan like ca- the Catalan language still exists in northeastern Spain, even though it was illegal under Franco for like two generations. Right. So it's like not that these things entirely go away. Um, you just make sure that the people who are on the wrong side of it are getting crushed under your boot. And I don't want to sp- I mean, speaking about it casually. Right. As if this is like a, that is what's happening. Right. There's no need to be glib about it. Um, 
but I, I think that anybody who uh, who who really goes too far to make this kind of compromise is uh, giving away more than they should, honestly. And uh, honestly, I think also the tax on uh, profits out of Chinese box office is pretty high. And uh, the, the sort of viability of block, box office blockbuster movies is also in question. So the whole thing might not really be worth it uh, after in, in a certain respect. I mean, well, you, do you mean the, the figurative tax? That is to say it's too much. Your your ability to speak your mind is too much to give away in order for access to uh, to a market for our movies. Or do you mean the actual tax? Do you mean that the, the Chinese keep too high a proportion of the box? Oh, I office? meant the latter. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think because I think the box office number, as much as I praise the uh, the box office numbers that companies get from China, like, oh, man, Fast and Furious 7 did so great in China and it made so much money. And it's really a show that it's kind of got global appeal. And, I, you know, I, yeah, I, but I, that's might revenue. Be, I, might I mean, that's the, not that's yeah. revenue. That's not, you know, income to the to the studios. Um, yeah. Uh, my sense is that the actual haircut on foreign earnings on Chinese box office is pretty freaking high. Um, I don't know. I, I, I had read somewhere that it was like a quarter to a third. Um, but I don't know if that's actually true. And I'm, I'm frantically Googling to try to confirm it. Uh, in my mind, I thought it was, I thought it was older, but this is, I mean, it is definitely, that's a kind of statistic where there are a lot of values with high truthiness where it was like American companies only get one in $5 that they make in China. You know, I don't know, like, uh, but like you'd believe it, right? Whatever, however, uh, however high the proportion, you would believe, um, you would believe it. This is an interesting thing to me because when I was younger and inclined to go be a jerk on on message boards and like be like, well, actually, like devil's advocate guy on uh, mailing lists or, or message boards, I would always get, um, I would always get the the you know a little uh, uppity about the idea that like censorship has to involve a state actor uh, and and a person under that state's jurisdiction, right? So it's like oh, it's censorship when you say I can't you know be a jerk on this forum, you know, or you know what that when this was it was like people trying to think about moderating comments on overthinking it as well. Like, oh it's censorship when you say I can't say X, Y, and Z. You know, when I can't say Shannon Wolofsky's an idiot. It's like, no, you you can't say that. It's not censorship. You can't come into my house and poop on the floor. And uh you know, and by the way, I'm not a state actor and uh and by the way, and your IP is blocked so long. Um and I felt very good about doing that right like uh, i was uh i was doing the right thing and i i still think that um and yet i've come to embrace a more and and honestly i'm not sure i would change my approach to overthinking it comment moderation back in the back in the uh day um but knowing what i know now but thinking about about all of these all of these uh american businesses using their own discipline you know, with their employees or, or whatever, constraining the kind of the boundaries of the discourse drink, um, to, you know, to appease a potential, the, the leaders of a potential market or business, um, business partner, right? Like, uh, it, it, it seems like there is a state actor exercising outsized influence on, on people's, um, expression whether or not uh they are strictly speaking under its jurisdiction and kind of in a globalized world what jurisdiction means is perhaps a little squirrely so 
you know, I don't know. Is it, is it, um, I had a question at a, a uh, direction I wanted, I wanted to go with this, but like, mm, is it necessarily, I mean, is, is it necessary to kind of revise our values to revise our sort of ideas about free speech and to kind of revise our ideas about sort of politeness and acceptability uh, in the public square and the kinds of like the kinds of discussions that we're going to get into um, in order not to, you know, in order to not uh, slide a couple inches down that that slippery slope or is it you know are these are these things you know um sort of civility online uh the a sense of of free exchange of political thought and uh the the interests of you know foreign state actors uh using their economic power to uh, twist the arms of of um, uh, other companies, companies not in their country. Are are these phenomena that we can extract from one another that we can disentangle very easily, or is it is it one big uh, is it one big free speech pie? Interesting. Does that? I mean, um, does it make sense? Does it make sense what I'm saying? I mean, am I am I just muddying the pool, Pete? Am I just like kicking up mud by saying, well, you know, like why can't we abuse women on Reddit? That's the same as the Chinese saying Tom Cruise <laughs> can't can't wear a Taiwan flag on his on his jacket when you know, of course, it's not. Uh, and and I, I, but I think we need to kind of get a little more nuance with our ideas uh, about what about uh, freedom and whether or not it is free. <laughs> I do wonder whether what we're seeing is that a relative collapse in various sorts of ways in which standards for conversation are are kind of exemplified, right, or or uh, established. Uh, that you know the, the reason that you might. You, 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 I think human beings are very good at intuiting how other human beings in their approximate area uh, are responding to what they're kind of saying, doing, you know, how they're talking, how they're acting. We have a lot of social intelligence. Uh, most most people have a lot of social intelligence to understand uh, how to kind of try to fit in with the other people that are around them. And the more that the irony here is that there is a push for hegemony that's coming alongside this fragmentation. And in some ways, it feels fundamentally doomed in the sense that, like, well, you know, the you're really trying to swim uphill here. You're really trying to say that, like, well, every, everybody has to talk about what I think that they should talk about, whereas that was just sort of a natural state of affairs, you know, three generations ago in the Western world. Right. Like and, 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 and that, you know, the comics code and whatnot. Right. Like uh, people not saying curse words on television. These were all kind of normal things. And you didn't need you had government agencies that had a vested interest in enforcing this sort of thing. But the importance of their role in it is debatable and that mostly it seems like the ideas of, of fitting in and kind of social conformity. But but even and even just saying it and the way that in which it's been demonized over the course of like like 
if people wonder what it is that the baby boomers did, like that's what they did, right? Is they, is they cracked wide open the longstanding taboos in the Western world about talking about objectionable and obscene things, uh, right? Like and um, and questioning patriotism and things like that were were really big big deals in their generation, and and the ways that their parents treated them about it is something that I think people who never knew people from who would be our grandparents' generation, at least in the United States, right? Um, in terms of people who who've kind of been part of kind of assimilated U.S. culture that we not understand, right? Um, it's not that foreign to be told that you're not allowed to say a certain thing, but usually the mechanisms for it are are interpersonal, right? It's like somebody else has, has impressed upon you that you're not supposed to talk in a certain way. And, and what we're seeing, I suppose, is because everybody is talking to everybody else, it's a many-to-many relationship, you're seeing all of those different sorts of circles where people have different sorts of expectations based on who they predominantly talk to conflict with each other and contradict with each other. And so uh, that, to me, seems to be the most basic discomfort is the idea that, like, you know, I have a pretty, you know, I, I was raised to think that, you know, you you speak you speak truth to the bully. Right. And, and you engage the bully and you talk to them, you know, and, and, and you walk away from a fight, but you kind of get in their face a little bit and they'll back down because they're cowards. Ultimately. Right. This is kind of what I was told as a kid. Um, you know, you confront bullies and, and you show that you're not scared of them. Um, you don't like necessarily like preemptively destroy all the bullies right like you don't like round up all the people with violent tendencies and lock them up um but but i mean that is also a perspective that has a certain amount of of at least empirical uh desire for empirical efficacy um i mean mark do you, you hear what i'm talking about in terms of like soft power versus hard power in terms of be encouraging people to behave in the way that you want them to in a way that kind of supports the overarching uh, whatever particular yeah. colonial sphere you live in, whether it's the Chinese capital O communo uh, empire colonial sphere or the more old fashioned white bread varieties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so let me yeah. let me try to package up what you're what you're saying there and yeah. advance it uh, a couple of, in a couple of different ways. Um, so you're talking about kind of like these established norms for discourse that were, um, you know, the, the baby boomers cracked that open. Um and widened the 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 uh, the, uh, the scope of what was considered to be acceptable speech. Um, yeah. Is that fair to say so far? Yeah, the rock okay. and roll, that rock, that dancing yeah, the, is the I, devil, right. right? Like that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, counterculture, so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, and but still along the way, what's guiding that is interpersonal relationships, um, a, a sense of you know uh, norms and and what is acceptable and not acceptable to say. Uh, primarily, kind of like you know in person or like what you put on print or what you put in the mass media, right? right Those right. constraints still held, even though the baby boomers blew it up quite a lot. Um, now you have sort of our social media era, right? And what you hear a lot about, particularly with online extremism, is that um, those barriers have collapsed. So that right. you've gone, we've now gone to a whole other level of, I guess, like acceptable, quote unquote, acceptable speech, um, where uh, you, know, you can say all sorts of incendiary things and uh, find some sort of home for that online. So that's like, you know, the movement over the last few years um, in the Western world. Meanwhile, in the uh, in the in the Sinosphere, for lack of a better word, in, in communist China, right, um, they have had none of that. Right. There has been uh, just continued suppression and escalating suppression of free speech. Um, and uh, American corporations have been dragged along with that because sort of countervailing against this sort of uh, uh, trend of anything goes is this uh, for, for the sake of speech is anything goes for the sake of profits. 
Um, so that's kind of like, uh, I, I'm sure I'm flattening out and oversimplifying a lot of different things here, but that's to pick up Pete where you just left off and to bring us to this, this current state we're in now. And like the, the insane tension, I think that everybody feels, uh, in the discourse. Does that, does that feel about right? Yeah. It's just, it's weird because when you're thinking about the ways in which, the the you know the even the sort of the pre, the elite predecessors to the kind of mass rock and roll kind of culture and and the sort of countercultures that really were subaltern prior to that whether it was black culture or um, other immigrant cultures or Native American culture that kind of had a different perspective on things than the kind of mainstream American culture and this all kind of like explodes right in the um, and the baby boomer generation. And then, you know, we encountered this sort of Gen X or part of it when we were young. And this idea that you kind of had the freedom to drop out of society if you wanted. There was a general idea associated with all this that it made the country stronger, that it made people wealthier, that it improved economic activity, it created opportunities, it creates. I mean, one of the things that you could argue is that. Uh, suppressing people's ability to speak in ways that are countercultural, like crushes new ideas or mis- mis- ends up misapplying uh, labor and, 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 and talent, right? Because somebody who's, who's really, might be really good at doing something that could help your country ends up, you know, on some sort of blacklist because they happen to like dudes, right? Or they happen to dislike a particular senator or the president at any given time. And that it's bad for the overall health of economies, which are based on the productivity and the work that their people put into them to be going around kind of telling people that they can't do this or they can't do that. Uh, and and in general, if you want a kind of dynamic, evolving, positive economy and, and a sort and you also if you want a more stable sort of society in which people can coexist more effectively and not live in fear, then this idea of kind of liberalizing what everybody is allowed to talk about is generally helpful. And I think that the most kind of strange thing about this controversy to me is the conviction. And again, I guess it's it's only real. It's strange because I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt, which perhaps I just shouldn't. Perhaps I should just say that Mr. G is an evil man and he is a tyrant and a despot and uh, and, and a pooh bear with his head stuck in the honey tree. Right. And his butt hanging out. Uh, and he should banned you know, in China. He should this check himself before now he banned himself. In China. <laughs> like maybe that's the case. Right. But. He contends that 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 not talking in a sort of dissenting way about the government is going to improve all of these things that at least in terms of correlation, if not causation in the Western world. Right. We have like strongly disproven. Right. That like that, like the United States in the mid 20th century is a much more prosperous place uh, than the United States in like the mid 19th century. Right. When when people are all bottled up and chained to their job, literally chained to their jobs. Right. Like like that, that if you like free people up and give people more autonomy to move around, to say what they want to say, do it, do what they want to do, say what they want to say, live how they want to live, play how they want to play, dance how they want to dance, kicking their stuff, you know, the Adams family and whatnot, that that's going to kind of generally it's going to generate more uh, economic and social resilience. And you even see situations where, like, you know, mayors of cities will say, I want my city to be a zone where immigrants can come and go freely. Right. Where the regulations on kind of who can who can do what, where are like looser, because these are spaces of special economic like vitality and dynamism. And you telling them that they can't do this or they can't do that. Uh, you know, they need X visa and form because our culture needs to be protected and all this other nonsense. Right. Like that's bad for business. 
And so even if I recognize that there's this sort of broader will of the people to do this thing, uh, I'm convinced that it is better for the business in my city for me to be allowed to make this kind of exception. Like you see that a lot. And in fact, you could probably see that a lot through history, um, you know, even in places like, you know, the, the great trading cities in, in very conservative sorts of, uh, of empires. Right. And uh and so on and so forth. So, th- so that's the thing that makes it e- weird it, for me is like because otherwise he's just being a jerk. But if it's the idea that this actually helps, well, first of all, who is it helping? And second of all, it's like at what cost, right? Hong Kong generates a tremendous amount of economic activity and wealth and dynamism, and I would even venture to say like a fair amount of kind of social resilience. I know a fair number of people from Hong Kong. I, I lived with a guy for Hong Kong for three years and we had, we had a lot of parties and met a lot of people. And, um, I didn't get the sense that, that their sort of being, a being here, right. Was like, it reflected a kind of lack of commitment to their country, right. Or like a kind of fear or terror or like, you know, they're, they're not checking out of Hong Kong the way that my ancestors, you know, pieced out of Prussia, right? Like it's, it's like <laughs> they would be fine going back. Right. A lot of them did. Um, and it's, uh, it's just it's sort of like, you know, the reason that we have the Midwest is because of the the hardcore conservative tyranny in 19th century Russia, which or 19th century Germany. Right. Which like all these people with all these resources move. Right. And they're like, F this. And so that's the que- that's sort of part of my question is like, does he think that this actually works? And first of all, does it actually work? Which I don't know if it's even empirically possible to know. Like, I don't even I have no basis for knowing because there's no possible way to do it unbiased sort of report on this sort of thing, right? Like, um, but like, I don't think that just breaking the spirit of Hong Kong is going to improve earnings of corporations that are based there or improve the standard of living, right? Like, I, I, but maybe that's just because that's what I've encountered, or maybe none of this has to do with any of it. It's all been affected by other factors and it's all coincidental. But that's the thing that strikes me is like, yeah, the NBA thinks, right? The NBA maybe thinks that they can, they are long term earnings are going to be improved by supporting this particular sort of way of thinking about language and freedom. But like maybe what the NBA doesn't know is that if things were liberalized in China more in the long term, they would do a lot better. Right? Like, uh, but they can't see that. Right. Because you can only see what's in front of you and you can't. And having a sort of vision uh, based on values is, is a hard thing to do in business these days. Or I, guess. I mean, a, a vision that goes beyond the next quarterly earnings call. Right. Like, well, yeah, say that, like, I, hey, hey, we're making a we're making a 20 to 50 year bet on the liberalization of Chinese politics. <laughs> right. Does not does not sort yeah. of fit really well into an annual report. How do you hedge and, that? And I, I would I'd also add that, like, you know, the United States has effectively already made its 20, 30 year bet on the liberalization of China. You know, yeah. with, with opening up uh, you know, to the WTO and so on and so forth after Tiananmen. And how has that worked out? I mean, you could argue pretty well, right? Like, it certainly it hasn't led to a war yet. (laughs) Well, I mean, just just to be clear, what 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 I'm saying is that essentially the the bet that the the Western world made with China was that um, we will accept its authoritarian regime, we will trade with them, we will make them money, we will make ourselves a lot of money as well too, and over time their politics will liberalize. So the first part of that came true. The second part did not. Well, yeah, but that's that's how you sell it. Isn't that sort of how you sell the the bitter pill of kind of swallowing swallowing your values to to the electorate, right? Like, yeah, yeah, and and with the the idea that like by this time, I think 
I mean, based on the all the sort of Tiananmen retrospectives that I read a few months ago, the idea was that by now it should have worked out, and it really hasn't. Like it's like you, well, you know, fifty years. What, what's the payoff on yeah, that? But supposed to, to, be? to be fair, America's uh, society and self conception is very different than it was thirty years ago, right? Like the, you know, I I guess like a lot of people who made a bet, a twenty to fifty year bet on the liberalization of American uh, society and and politics are are probably. Um, you know, I don't know, are 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 well, probably calling their financial planner right about now for 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 certain definitions, though. I mean, uh, that we're getting a little bit. Tell you, Pete, you're, you're trying to get it there. Oh, well, I was going to say is that I think it's important not to overemphasize, not to over exaggerate uh, Mr. Xi's success in implementing his vision, because China is still a place of a huge amount of protest and internal conflict. And and a lot. It's also a heavily I think in practice, it's a heavily federated place in the sense that, yeah, the Central Committee, like, you know, as it were, right, has, you know, grants itself through its infinite wisdom, this sort of absolute authority. But ultimately, a lot of what happens in China is dictated by local authorities. And that's the biggest thing that China and the United States have in common is that we're both not really as set. We both are less centrally planned than you would think. Right. It's, it's different in degrees, you know, but it's like our, our economies have grown up with more kind of devolution of authority than you would have guessed from how you, people talk about the government. Uh, and in that sense, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of protests in China every year. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of dis- discomfort with situations. And like, yeah, there's a lot of growth, too. So what I kind of wonder is, you know, we hear and see this desire to suppress, this impetus to suppress. And we see people punished for what we firmly believe are unjust reasons. And I mean, yeah, I think I think the blizzard eventually rolled back the guy's punishment a little bit, but they didn't apologize properly for it. Um, but yeah, but it's sort of like. Let's not let's not over exaggerate the amount of stability that you're actually getting out of this. And let's also not um, forget about the vast, you know, the vast, vast population of, of China that's that's kind of off the map for us because we don't get to talk to them. Like, we don't we don't get we don't get culture in America about, you know, like uh, the honeymooners equivalent in China. Right? Like, I, like I was thinking about that, like this sort of um, even in the sort of Red Scare era, there's still a lot in American entertainment that we can look at in an archived way about kind of how working class people live Um and and like also people who are uncouth, right? The sort of manners of people who don't conform to the standards of society are kind of lampooned and talked about. And I'm sure there's there's culture like that sorts in China, but I've not seen any of it. Like I have no idea what it's really like to be a like not well off mainland China person, right? Uh, and I, I hear more about what Mr. Xi does than I hear about the other billion people that live there. And almost all of my contact is with people who are pretty well off because they're able to migrate or move for jobs. And so, yeah, I'm pretty well off too. So like you could argue that like, you know, when I went to Louisiana for my bachelor party and we actually talked to people who lived in the Delta, you know, it's horrifying to hear about the really entrenched poverty down there. That's just totally foreign to, to anything that exists, you know, even in the, in the, very dreariest places uh not, i shouldn't say dreary i should be so dismissive what, what, what were you doing at your bachelor party pete i was, I was <laughs> holding alligators well okay so the night before you got there we had a great dinner with a really good friend of one of my best men as it were uh, uh, a chef i believe jason goodenough is the chef he's he was chef of the year in new orleans by some magazine at one point great chef he has a great restaurant over by uh by uh, tulane um okay. 
And 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 the thing about his restaurant is that when you walk outside, oh, Carrollton Market's the restaurant. When you walk outside and you look up, you see the ocean, <laughs> right? Like the whole place was annihilated during Katrina. And, and it's like this is part of where the levees broke. And so he and he being a kind of boss of a restaurant, a lot of his work, working staff are like people who are, you know, former convicts who can't get work in other places or people whose main skills come from their families and not from formal education. And he did a lot of charity work. So he was sort of telling us his experience after Katrina with the areas around the Delta, the places that were hit really hard with the flooding, the various communities that he's worked with. And he was, of course, we were doing this while like being served courses of in- incredibly delicious food that was not cheap. So it's sort of like it was a little bit of a limousine liberal kind of experience, but it was sort of like um, hearing those stories. Right. Uh, And I don't know. And and even I don't know whether it's, you know, cruising in the gator boat. (laughs) Also, sort of sense of the environs is a little bit different. Um, Like when we were when we were caught in the rain trying to get liquor and there's all these people who are kind of crowded under every awning. And you just get the sense that there's a, a kind of subculture there that is different than what I'm used to. Um, and that's all I'm saying is that it's different. It's like, oh man, this is different. Um, the, there's people here who live a different sort of life than even the people who are, you know, hard up for money around where I live. And yeah, those people have tough problems, but these people have tough problems that are different problems. Um, that's all I'm saying really is that like, there are that like, I know that there are people in America who have lives that are different and you know, in the United States and America at large, right. Have lives that are very different from anything I've encountered. Uh, and I also know, you know, a lot more about the kind of central government of this country than about their lives. But the ratio of that for China is like enormous. Right. And that's kind of it's also the case with the Soviet Union back when we were kids. Right. It's like we didn't know anything uh, about what it was like to live in the Soviet Union other than like bread lines and whatnot. Right. That we heard about Um you know, you don't you didn't get to travel. Nobody's parents went to Moscow on vacation and came back telling the stories about the cute little markets that they went to or whatever. Right. Like that wasn't a thing that happened back in the day. So I guess one of the consequences of these kinds of regimes is 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 a real lack of connection with the perspective of the people who have to deal with the the what I would say is the sort of um it's sort of like how good the condom actually works as opposed to how good you say it works, right? Like you, you can wear the condom and you can think that it's going to protect you from STDs and it's going to protect you from having an unwanted pregnancy. But like the effectiveness of the condom, you know, on the on the in the sort of official standing is like in the high 90s. But in practice, it's in like the 80s. Right. And um, and what and if you think of. Uh, centralized regimes trying to crack down on the ability of the people to dissent and to have like unfavorable opinions or to like act in ways that are counter to the interests of the state. Like we're at the sponge. Like what form of birth control are we talking here? Like the withdrawal method? Yeah. <laughs> like how how good is it really in practice? And because the things that come in and out are so limited, I I don't know. Right. I, I just I just don't know. And that's part of what bothers me about this, because I don't want to take Xi Jinping's word. I don't want to take the NBA's word for what the reality is on the ground in China. And I have not had a chance to travel there. Right. And so I don't know. 
Um, so I guess what I would say is that if you've been to China, mainland China, uh, I guess Hong Kong too, or the independent country of Taiwan, right, um, or any of the South Sea Islands that are the the property of the Philippines or any of that stuff, right? Um, the uh, just trying to just trying to make sure that we are officially banned in China after this thing is over. Um, I would love to hear more about what your perspective is about how much people, because I, I from what I've read and heard, people are very patriotic. It's a very very patriotic country. Uh, the, the public schools uh, teach a lot of patriotism, and because perhaps all of the economic growth, there's good reason to be to believe that the country is acting in your interest. People in China, people in Vietnam are much more optimistic. The middle class has been growing, right? We've been hearing all these things. But like, how much in their day-to-day conversation are they really uh, cognizant of the limitations of the government, or is it something that they just don't that they don't care about unless it kind of really hits them hard. Right. I don't know. I want to hear more about that stuff from their perspective. I think there's, Um, there's a a kind of topic area that this opens up for me about kind of a collapsing of the, the difference between a public and a private sphere, right? Like the idea that like a personal Twitter is not really personal. If you work for the NBA or the idea that, you know, because social media, the end result of social media is for everyone to kind of treat themselves like, you know, the, the, communications to officers of a, a major brand that this is you know um that the, the end result of this is that you know the, you don't have a, a private a private thought someone made a, a knock on john updike once i forget who it is i'd have to google um that you know oh you know at some point at some point in his youth he may have had an unpublished thought because updike was <laughs> notoriously prolific producing novel after novel after novel and and, you know, article after article of criticism, collecting those in volumes, um, you know, uh, so that that like this, this is but this is the kind of the existential state of of life in the developed world, right? Like life under social media where there is there is no there is no ungrammed moment, you know, there is no. Uh, and and I think that like I, I read um Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, the New Yorker culture critic, recently. It's a book I recommend very highly to everyone. And she makes the point that because on the internet um, you can't have things, you can only have the representations of things, uh, that since we spend all of our time interacting with information that flows over the internet, to a certain extent you could say that we've come to, to prioritize the representations of things higher than the things themselves, right? And there's sort of, um, there's a, so this this interacts with the idea that that public and private collapses when you have an everybody to everybody um, global communication network. How you know, however, uh, however, you know well well or badly censored it is in any given country on earth right to 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 make it so that we sort of prioritize right thinking and right action um over actual sort of practical material conditions on the ground so like pete i'm i'm interested in two things that that you've said over the course of our discussion one is that we actually probably don't know very well about the material conditions of the vast majority of people in mainland China, right? We probably don't have information. And what's more, we probably aren't good sources of information. Right. The other thing that you said was that Blizzard hasn't apologized. 
right? And mm-hmm. is it important? What, what is the importance of Blizzard apologizing if the material conditions <laughs> of the of the gamers who were who were banned right has been uh, has been restored, ameliorated, remediated? You know, however it was, however it was handled. You know, and and let me let me just add more poop into this poop stew that I'm making here. <laughs> I I think that on the the American left were particularly prone to prioritize uh, right right thought and right speech um, because very often in the second half of the 20th century, it was seen in, in the civil rights movement, for example, uh, it was seen as, uh, you know, wrong speech, racist speech was seen as abetting racist violence. Um, but it makes us susceptible to forces from other parts of the political spectrum, and I use that word, those words, political and spectrum, advisedly, uh, who don't care about anything, right? And who will uh, gleefully make us dance to our own tune, um, you know, by... Uh, finding minuscule ways in which we have violated our own principles of of right thought and right speech um, uh, in order to make us politically ineffective and, by the way, to do one of those wonderful uh, Schopenhauer, you know, 33 awful ways of winning an argument in bad faith things of focusing on procedural matters rather than rather than substantive ones. And I think that this this particular issue, the issue of, you know, China retaliating against the NBA and and uh, then the NBA kind of passing on the retaliation and uh, or you know blizzard banning uh, tournament competitors right like well known um, esports people you know that that these walk us into a lot of areas that are sort of thorny and really badly theorized and kind of bad there's bad sets of of laws and and almost non-existent sets of of traditions around this as opposed to something like social contract theory as opposed to like enlightenment enlightenment democracy um and like uh john locke or thomas jefferson and sort of natural rights uh, natural rights theory, right? Like the, um, cause I, I think free speech is not, it's not actually an instrumental argument when it was framed in the, the first amendment, uh, of the U S constitution. It was the intellectual history of that, at, at least insofar as I understand it. And maybe this is uh, whitewashed by the kind of American history I got taught was that like, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a pre state in a state of nature, you know, you have free speech, right. And the state only with the consent of the government, the state only takes away those things that everyone agrees that it can take away in the interests of everyone. And free speech is not, uh, you know, is not one of those. So like, it's an, it's an intrinsic good. Um, and, and we have no comparable set of, of theory and we have no comparable set of, of practical tradition around 
you know, modern, modern communication around, you know, contemporary, the, the contemporary media world, um, whether it's individuals or whether it's institutions or whether it's state actors, right. That, that, um, that allows us to find our way here. Yeah. Okay. So let me try to paraphrase all that. We're in uncharted, uncharted territory, right? We have our preconceived notions around um, free speech, uh, liberal democracies, um, running up against um, this kind of uh, race to the bottom, global capitalism, uh, and uh, this illiberal authoritarian regime, which is also extremely wealthy and highly integrated into the global economy. We just like don't have a precedent for that. We don't have a great sets of frameworks uh, to navigate all this uh, discourse, all this, all this, all these crazy discourse rules that are, that are coming up here. So like if I could try to pivot this conversation uh, and see if we can uh, try to offer up some guiding principles, some uh, navigational aids for uh, getting through this uh, very turbulent time uh, and, and just like kind of thinking about like, how do I, as a citizen of the United States and a uh, global citizen of the internet, um, it, it, uh, interact, well, at least like process all of this. Man, I guess the first thing that I would say is just don't make the assumption that the person you're talking to has the same norms that you have. That's a good but one. Al- yeah. But also don't assume that you have to abide by their norms and that your own norms are worthless. Like one of the one of the kind of follow ons from I I don't know. People talk about like relativism as if it's a solution. I don't necessarily think it's so much a solution as it is a problem. Right. Like it's a reality. The idea that there are different people that have different norms and different beliefs um, and that you're that it isn't necessarily a solution to that problem to believe your own beliefs are right in itself. Uh, and, and so so that's sort of the situation that you live in. You have to navigate a situation where other people have different ideas about what free speech constitutes than you. And that's tough uh, because in in a lot of experience, you know, growing up in your family or your town or your kind of circle of friends, you probably have a lot of similar ideas uh, is, is my guess. Right. So I guess that would be one thing. And because I think we also because there are certain kinds of ways of looking at it. I mean, one of the big ones is like the communist way, right? which is like, don't question the states, right? Like, uh, you know, don't, don't speak, you know, frame all of your language, be very self-conscious about how all your language is framed with regards to like the larger material conflicts. And, uh, and, and you do not, there's no such thing as kind of a good as, as what is it? There's no, there's no, uh, oh, what's it's funny. It's like, a, it's like a phrase that shows up in memes with Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, there's, it's like, there's no moral, purchasing under capitalism or something. I don't know. There, there's a certain comfort in adhering to that kind of strict uh, way of thinking about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody does. It's, it's a false comfort. Everybody has different ideas of it. So the question is, what are your ideas? And try to come up with them and and I guess then figure out how you negotiate that in the context with dealing other, with other people. I've been vamping for a little bit, Matt, to give you time to come up with the actual answer. What is it? For, wait, for how we, how we make a... How, you know, I don't know. I... I um... I just don't go on Facebook anymore. That's, that's well, right. I, so here's the, here's I, the basic. I, I, I quit Twitter. That's, you know, I, I, and, and, you know, I took a brave, bold stance and stopped using this app that I didn't use anyway. So here's the act. I think here's the philosophical issue, right? And I think this goes back to what um, Matt was saying, which is that free speech is broadly viewed as a negative right, right? I think a lot of people that you talk to on the internet don't approach rights 
with a sense of positive rights versus negative rights. I think it's become very fashionable to uh, ignore the the uh, conceptual difference between a positive right and a negative right, which means that if you adhere to the idea that the distinction is important, then you're likely to run into a lot of people who disagree with you. Uh, but but the sense that the difference being right is that a positive right means that if you don't have something, if there's some sort of right that you're entitled to and you don't have it, uh, whatever sort of body is sort of mutually uh, you know, beholden to this notion of rights has an obligation to provide it for you. Versus a negative right, which is that whatever sort of mutual body is involved in beholding these rights can't prevent you from having it. So like the philosophical example often is like you have a right to not be killed. You have a negative right to not be killed, but you don't have a positive right to not die. Right? And there's various sorts of reasons why you can't. For one, nobody nobody can help you not die forever. Right? Like it's kind of a there's sort of a natural aspect to it where it's kind of practically uh, inconceivable or inconvenient to ask the society at large to say, like, you know, me, me, Pete, I should I, I can never die. And it's your and if and if I die, you screwed up. I mean, like that's well, I, you know that's it. Th- 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 yes, Pete. Of course, in a practical way, but also I think there are some people. I think there are some provo- proponents of of you know state sponsored universal health care who would talk about something. Uh, akin to the right not to, to not die, right? Or at least a related right to sort of not be left to die, which is different, right. Di- w- right. you know, which is different, but which actually sort of, um, I, you know, okay, so if, if, if you have a right to not die, does that mean I have, a, I, I have to help you not die? I mean, if possible, I, right, you know, right. it, gets, it gets thorny. As, as you say, don't assume everybody you're talking to shares the norms that, that yeah. uh, you subscribe to. Yeah, I was, I was sort of uh, trying, exactly, I was trying to establish sort of most extreme standpoints. And then as you kind of move in from, from that, uh, you get to situations where people do kind of say, well, we should have a positive right here, right? Um, you know, like, I mean, a, a big one is sort of pro-choice and the sort of natural right a woman has to the integrity of her own body. Right. And the idea that the state shouldn't come in with a with a with a sharp implement and stab women. Right. Or like you know, for whatever. Right? Like they should force women to do like if a woman is dying because her, you know, she has a bad pregnancy going on. Uh, the state can't pre- can't force her to die by preventing her from doing something to her own body. Right. Is, is the is part of is kind of this idea. Right. Um and then you get to people who are like, well, you know, there's contravening rights and contravening ideas. And, and you know, yes, you have a positive right to water. Everybody should be provided with water. And, and it's sort of a problem for everybody to figure out how we're going to do that. But that doesn't obviate us from the responsibility of doing it. And so I, w- I, w- I guess what I would say is that, like, once you get into the standpoint of people having positive rights, that's just a fundamentally different sort of agreement than a negative right. So if you were to say that I have a positive – I have a negative right to free speech and that nobody can – can like prevent me from talking, right? Like, like that is, and the government can't like lock me up or kill me for saying things. That's different from a positive right to free speech, which is that if anybody were to try to prevent me from speaking, then like that person, the sort of whatever sort of collective mutual agreement we all have to protect each other would have to step in and intervene on my behalf as somebody who is who is speaking freely. And and I saw and I think that one of the big cases of this sort of thing is losing your job. Right. You lose your job because you say something that's objectionable and this is your livelihood. It's a you could argue, I think, that this is coercion. Right. Because it's it's you're talking about life and death. 
Uh, a lot of yeah. times, to be clear, know, you're talking about the Hearthstone player that Blizzard banned and took away the prize money from, right? Yeah, sure. But I'm also talking more generally. Well, I'm thinking about a specific case in my own mind, which I guess I'll share because why not? This is the podcast about saying things that might get you fired. Um, a number of years ago, I dealt with a situation where a couple of employees at a company that I worked with did a video on YouTube on their own, right? Where what they did was answer a common question that they got from customers. So these were like retail level employees. These were like not particularly, they hadn't been at the company for a long time. They were young. They didn't have like a hugely specialized skill set, but they knew the kind of interactions the customers were likely to have when they would walk into the shop. And they made a YouTube video explaining how to go about as a customer fixing this sort of practical problem that they would often run into because there was some system that was screwed up or they were asking for the wrong thing and then they would get surprised because the 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 thing that they they would get the thing that they asked for but it wouldn't result in the result that they wanted. And so they made this video with so the intention did, of helping they, people. They did technical support. They did customer support yeah. basically, but off yeah, the but clock. But they did it on their own. They did it off the clock and in it they cursed a lot. Oh, got it. Right. And they spoke in a very uncouth manner. And of course, like, you know, this is when I'm talking about the honeymooners. It's sort of like, ha ha ha, look at the poor people. You know, they they don't talk nice. Right. They're they're always being coarse and, and harsh. Right. Um, and, and this is my elitism is showing here. Right. But it's like I'm not convinced that the people's heart wasn't in the right place. But having the video out there where these people were like cursing about the situation at the company and the and the way that they were dressed was like intolerable to the company. I'm pretty sure both of those girls lost their jobs and I'm not convinced that it was right. Right. Um, and and I mean, the video was taken down before maybe even a, a, a hundred people saw it. Nobody cared. Right. This wasn't something that people like cared about, but it showed up on the searches that the company did about the social media that was run. And, and it got taken down through a takedown request that the girls weren't involved in. And then the girls were fired. And there's policies that they broke to prevent them from doing that. And there are reasons that those policies exist. I understand that. But you could also argue that like. I mean, even from from there's the argument that you said before, the Jeffersonian argument of like, you know, there's they have a right to not be coerced, to not talk there. You know, the, the company is acting like a government in a way that it really shouldn't. There's this sort of negative right in which they've been kind of interfered with in their ability to just converse and talk about something that that they have a pretty standard reason to want to talk about, which is the stuff that they do every day. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, right, there's also the John Stuart Mill kind of free speech argument, which is that free speech has an extrinsic benefit because it generates a marketplace of ideas. And by by censoring people, what you're doing is you're preventing ideas from conflicting with each other and mixing with each other. And you're kind of putting your finger on the scale for outcomes, which has kind of negative social and economic ramifications for society. And so, like, you know what? This customer service issue needed to be fixed. And if you allowed people to talk about it, maybe it would have been fixed faster. And maybe part of why it's not fixed is because you're punishing people for talking about it. And so in that sense, it's like, uh, yeah, it's not a simple solution, but there's a complex issue there that because the people can't talk about the thing that they work on every day and they get punished for it, the company is actually being hurt and the customers are being hurt and there's money that could be made and value that could be enjoyed that is being destroyed. Um, and then there's an argument of like, well, yeah, but you never see it. You can't calculate it. You won't measure it against whatever negative PR impact there is, you know. And so that's what I'm really thinking about when I'm thinking about like 
the the sort of modern consequences of free speech, right? That I, I say, like that's that's cancel culture. That's like people say cancel culture is when somebody gets like temporarily less popular because they said something that's kind of morally abhorrent or like uh, a certain group of people thinks is bad. No, no, the real cancel culture is when you get fired for for saying something like pretty reasonable. Right. Right. Because it happens to do it. It happens to have something to do with the brand and of your company. Now, I don't want to dismiss these concerns because the company is dealing with a reality where, like, the brand is also gone from a situation of negative right to positive. Right. Where, like, used to be hanging the, sh- the, the shingle up in front of your store. Right. Maybe you put up some advertisements and like, you know, as long as nothing terrible happens and you do a good job, people will like, think favorably of you to the point where now everybody has to make like a very proactive effort to try to make a brand that people will adhere to. Right. And buy from. And that's kind of the standard. And so the companies have gone to this sort of positive mode of expression about themselves, which means that the the you know the employees are being forced in this positive mode of expression, which is limiting their ability to speak freely, which is having extrinsic and intrinsic implications, among which is a very disproportionately negative to them, right? Uh, if they get fired for saying something that's you know even if it's just a political thing or whatever. I sympathize with it. I've participated in it. I understand why you shouldn't violate company policy on the job. I'm not saying it's smart to do this, but I can't help but think that there's that there's a technology of thought. And I mean, I'm talking about what Mark is saying here. I don't know what the solution to that is. Right. I don't know whether it's like everybody should have there should be a special website that's run by the Postal Service where everything that you put on there is protected by federal free speech law. Right. Except for things that incite violence. And it's like not administered by a commercial entity. And it's like a Jeffersonian playground kind of thing. That just seems Pollyannish. Right. Yeah, But it's also it's also in practical terms, it's going to be like 98 percent misogyny and like, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Within, right. Within problems. Probably 18 hours. Yeah. I mean, you got to think that I'm a big fan of the spirit of Appomattox, but that didn't stop them from overthrowing the government of Mississippi and murdering everybody. <laughs> right? Like it's, it's sort of like, you know, you can extend that olive branch and you can try to get along. But, uh, you know, even among people who you think are, are going to behave with dignity, there's a lot of scoundrels and there's a lot of intimidation. And so, like, how do how do we reframe and I'm sure there's lots of there's lots of people who've written about it. I'm sure there's lots of people who will now lecture us about how this is a solved problem. I don't think it is. Um, well, that I mean, it's funny that I mean, working in technology and startups and stuff like that, my there's an alternative ending to the story of rather than these two uh, young women getting fired, there's an alternative energy. It's like, and now she's our director of internal communication. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. And that like it actually it can be so much more. I mean, from the point of view of of small C conservatism, it can be so much more effective to co-opt the revolution. Yes. Than, <laughs> You know what I mean? Then to then that's to, why I'm surprised G isn't doing that in Hong Kong. Why is he not saying like you know, hey, you guys are great. We re- we really love you, and 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 this, and I want my picture taken with you because you know, like it, it seems like trivially easy to do for Americans. And it, it also it also think like you know, I don't know. You can come up with with trivial um, examples of this, but like it seems to me a lot of the time that like the the people who are are most you know seem most afraid of being sort of embarrassed are are people for whom 
if they could get over that, you can do so much better in practical terms once you, uh, you know, once you get over that fear of like looking, uh, once you get over that fear of, of, you know, being, being sort of publicly embarrassed, like it's, it, you can, I don't know, you you can judo a lot of, uh, a lot of bad PR except except you can't really judo your you know not your shutting down conversation like there there are um once you once you you know uh once you sort of make your move you there's kind of no no taking it back like when when other people whatever other people say there's generally a way there's generally a way around it PR wise in 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 practical terms um I guess like uh, I, the the best way to not feel completely hopeless about all of this stuff a lot, I think, is to narrow your scope, right? Um, you know, run for town council is what I'm saying, <laughs> right? Like uh, it 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 might be possible to create a sort of um, it might be possible to create a better world. Uh, that is to say, you might have have agency which allows you to create a better world uh, at the level of you and a couple hundred of your a couple hundred people around you, or like I, I don't know, create a create a better job, you know, um, right? Like now, you know, now that I'm. Uh, I, now that I'm a manager, I don't know. Maybe I'm a. Maybe I'm just deluded. But like, I do try to to uh, make it clear to the people who report to me that I give a crap about them, and that like, you know, I would like our time together to like m- improve their life somehow, <laughs> and other yeah. than just like trading their labor for a wage, uh, and that I'm willing to. Yeah, I think if you talk to people who work for me, like I, you know, I think they would say that I put my money where my mouth is, and by money I mean time mostly, like in terms of like spending my time and energy on on things that are not you know necessarily in my interest but that i think are in theirs you know i like and you can i have the agency thank goodness to be able to do that i'm lucky i'm lucky in that so like you know could you make your could you make your job a slightly nicer place um you know for the, for the people around you who are willing to participate in that sort of transformation yeah. and that like if you if you are able to do that like you, you know you can't you can't sort of fix china and if you uh if you think that you can or should we probably should should talk about whether they really want you to fix them um and what uh <laughs> what you mean by fix but like uh you can probably fix you know the the 16 or so square feet um, in a in or or thirty two or sixty four in concentric circles uh, around the spot where you're standing, and that's like to me, Mark. That would be my my sense of what the rule is. Um, you know, my sense of what the rule is uh, for how to to function in this yeah. this new world. I, I like that. That's where my mind was going as well, too. And to take it back to um, the our or topic of pop culture, right? Uh, you know, doing all those things, it won't fix China, uh, quote unquote. But if we want to live in a world where the next Tom Gunn sequel, Tom Cruise's jacket has the right patches on it, 
then I mean, these are <laughs> doing these things is, is in a certain ways, like kind of the only thing we can do proactively <laughs> to try to make a world uh, where uh, that sort of influence doesn't uh, just totally swallow the world whole. Make, make the world safe for Maverick. It's the, you know, like free, free Maverick. That's uh, really the, the motto of this podcast. Can I, can I propose one other idea before we, uh, so, because here's the thing, right? It seems like the mass media modes of driving consensus in a country have been replaced by these levers. And we've heard about how China has this like social desirability scale or whatever, where it's like how good you are to the state and and the various things like getting loans and stuff are going to get dictated by it and whatnot. If you do believe that we are headed for a mass a mass automation event where the vast majority of human labor is going to become redundant. And I don't necessarily think that this is necessarily what's going to happen, but I would just venture to say that threatening people with losing their jobs in a world where labor force participation is cratering is going to be a lot less effective than you think. Um, because only the people who have jobs will have an incentive to follow your guidance, right? Only the people who could get a loan anyway are going to toe the party line in order to be able to get a loan. And, and you, and I mean, just like, you know, organized crime is a product of a failure of institutions, you know, to, to account for the needs and, and necessary roles in a population, right? Like if you think that you're going to be building consensus, through this ability to like fire people or take away their prize money or take away their endorsement deals, right? I wonder if you won't be finding the universe of people that you can affect get smaller and smaller as more and more people kind of drop out of full-time employment. Um, and I know that that's still a lot of power there because, you know, obviously, you know, the the people who have more, are, they have more and controlling them, you control more. But I just wonder if there is a reckoning for this way of thinking that's maybe like 20 or 30 years down the line. And I want to put a pin in that um, that people can revisit when they are listening to this off of the nickel disc that we've launched into space on the SpaceX capsule for future generations to appreciate um, and, and kind of archived it for all posterity. Um, that, that was my last thought on it is like, yeah, we're in this kind of weird new normal where gover- where where employers are doing the job of governments. But like employers – the role of employers is probably shrinking too. Sure, there's a so, lot. There's so. a lot of between before that that social. Oh yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot that can happen. Yeah, um, but but it's just it just feels like it's it that that you're backing a you're backing a horse that's not accelerating. Uh, glow like in the larger sense, it's accelerating in certain places, but maybe not altogether. We'll see. We'll see. Mm. We will see. We'll see on the Overthinking It podcast next week. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks to Pete and Mark for podcasting with me. Uh, Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. Hey, Mark, what's your favorite thing about Shanghai Shek? He's uh, so svelte and skinny and attractive. <laughs> <laughs> he has a he had a, a variety of sweet cars, and you can go see them in the museum in his museum in Taipei. 
Oh, in the independent country style. of Taiwan? <laughs> <laughs> Why, yes, Pete. <laughs> wow. You know, was he was he pretty brave in facing down the Japanese threat? And, and, and you would say that he really had the needs of his people in his heart. Is that, uh, is that something that's true about Chiang Kai-shek? Yeah, that and he also loved Hearthstone. He loved Hearthstone. <laughs> yeah, he was oh, amazing. Man. He was a beast at Hearthstone. Oh man! And you know, won he never, all the won all the tournaments and kept all his prize money. I wonder why we never hear about that today, huh? Mm. <laughs> Follow the money. It. Follow the money, sheeple. Follow the money. <laughs> <laughs>